My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Hello, and welcome to episode eight of season two. I must admit, I was a little self-conscious recording this week's interview, because my guest is a far more experienced interviewer than I am. He's interviewed A-list celebrities, politicians, scientists and authors, and has hosted a string of shows on television and radio on at least three different continents. He's also the host of the popular podcast, We The People Live. His name is Josh Zepps, and he has a lot of interesting things to say about the state of the media landscape in the early 21st century, as well as plenty of wisdom to dispense for those of you who are pursuing a career in the media. Given all of that, and the fact that Josh has been doing this kind of thing a lot longer than I have, I have no hesitation in recommending this week's interview to you. Before we get to Josh... If you've ever wished that you could just get on with your creative work and leave the boring and scary business of business to someone else, then I'm afraid I have some bad news for you. If I had a Bitcoin for every creative who's told me, I'm really good at my work, so why am I struggling? I could fund a manned mission to Mars. If you're a maker or a performer who says, I just need someone to deal with the business side of things while I get on with my work, or a creative service provider who says, just put me in a room with a client and I'll get on with a job, you are kidding yourself. Because dealing with the business side of things is your job. Getting in the room with a client is your job. Hustling. In other words, engaging with people and making things happen is your job. Yes, you can get great people to help you, but handing over the business side of things, lock, stock and barrel to someone else, is asking for trouble. There are countless stories of artists and creatives who did this and got into trouble because they didn't read the small print and didn't understand the implications of the decisions they were delegating to the so-called professionals. Until you accept that hustling is part of your job, you will suffer and struggle. The sooner you accept it, the better you get at it, the sooner you will taste success and the more rewarding you'll find your work. Yes, I know it's hard and you would rather be doing other things. Maybe you don't feel you're a born communicator. Tell me about it. As an introverted British poet, I felt I couldn't be less suited to hustling. But I made it my business to learn and to find ways of doing it that are authentic for me. If I can do it, so can you. Maybe you're listening to this thinking, okay, but I don't know how to do it. If that's the case, then I wonder whether the knowing how to do it is the real problem. As the coach Steve Chandler is fond of pointing out, 
If you really want to know how to do something, there are lots of ways you can find out. If you Google it, you'll find lots of articles with advice on how to do it. If you search on Amazon, you'll find plenty of books full of advice. If you search on iTunes or YouTube, you'll find podcasts and videos explaining how to do it. If you look for courses and teachers, you'll find plenty of those too. You probably do this already when you really want to learn something, whether it's a language or a sport or a new creative technique. And for all of those things, you probably accept that there won't be a cookie-cutter solution or an obvious right way to do it. Different teachers will have different advice, and you'll have to go through a period of trial and error as you learn through experience what works best for you. It's the same with the business side of your career. It will take time and trial and error, and whatever works for other people may need to be adapted to fit your own situation and your own personality. But if you really play full out and you throw yourself into the learning process, you can get there. The biggest step is often the first step, accepting that this is part of your work and committing to learning it for real. One of the themes I keep returning to in this podcast is the idea that the times we're living in are a two-edged sword. On the one hand, we're living in an age of unprecedented creative stimulation via the internet, social media, accelerating technology, and an always-on working culture. And on the other hand, we're living in an age of unprecedented distraction from focused creative work from all the same sources. And the biggest concern for many creatives is a nagging sense that their most important work is being left undone. If you're excited by the opportunities of the creative age, but worried about the effect of all those digital distractions on your creativity, then I've written a book for you. Productivity for Creative People. It's a short, practical guide to getting creative work done in the 21st century, based on my own experience as a writer, creative entrepreneur, and father. All the ideas in the book have been road-tested in my coaching practice with creative professionals like you. So, if you want to create extraordinary work without necessarily disappearing to a cabin in the woods or even giving up your smartphone, check out Productivity for Creative People at... 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash productivity. That's 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash productivity. In the early 21st century, we're living in an age of massive media disruption. The rise of the internet and social media mean that TV, radio and the newspapers no longer dominate the way they used to. But they haven't gone away either. It's still not clear how the relationship between old and new media will play out. And of course, this has big implications for those of us who want to pursue a career in the media. Should we go the traditional route and try to persuade a producer to put us on air? 
Or should we do it ourselves by launching our own blog, podcast or YouTube channel and being so good the world can't ignore us? These are some of the issues I discuss with Josh Zepps, a TV and radio host, political commentator and comedian who hails from Australia and has spent the last few years living and working and broadcasting in the United States. Josh was one of the founding hosts of HuffPost Live, the innovative online TV network run by the Huffington Post. There he interviewed guests including Russell Brand, Jeremy Irons, Michael Moore, Liz Hurley and Jesse Jackson. His interviews occasionally made the BBC News over here in England when his guests said something particularly eyebrow-raising. And Twitter regularly exploded with outrage at some of the controversies that erupted on his watch. Josh is currently hosting a radio show for ABC, the Australian national broadcaster, and many of you around the world will know of him via his podcast, We The People Live. The show's tagline is Make Debate Healthy Again, and it features live panel discussions in front of an audience Josh describes as as wise as it is drunk, as well as in-depth interviews and some very lively discussions with guests including Scott Adams, Richard Dawkins, Joe Rogan and Louis Theroux. Josh is never afraid to speak his own mind, but one of the hallmarks of his podcast is his willingness to invite onto the show people with radically different viewpoints to his own, and to attempt to engage them in a respectful and productive debate. The results are sometimes considered controversial, but never boring. We The People Live has hit the number one position in the iTunes comedy podcast charts on numerous occasions. And, of course, Twitter still explodes with outrage on a regular basis. I had the pleasure of coaching Josh for several years and got to know his sharp mind and infectious sense of humour at first hand. The launch of We The People Live was one of the things we worked on together and I've been delighted to see the show take off into the stratosphere. When I listen to the show, he regularly makes me re-examine my own assumptions and to entertain other points of view, even if I don't agree with them, which, these days, is a much-needed service. I invited Josh onto my show because I thought he was the perfect person to answer some of the big questions about old and new media and how they relate to each other. I also thought he'd be a great source of advice for those of you who want to succeed in the media world. And also, frankly, because I knew he'd be funny and give me a great interview. He didn't disappoint on any of these levels. So, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Josh Zepps. So, Josh, when did you first look at a television and think, I want to be on there? I don't think that it was the medium, actually, Mark. I think it was uh, Heroes. I think, I think I developed Heroes before I developed an appreciation for the way that those heroes were getting in my face. And the first was probably Dave Letterman. When Dave Letterman, uh, well, your American listeners will, will understand what I'm about to say, and for everyone else in the rest of the world, <laughs> I apologise. But... <laughs> When David Letterman moved from NBC to CBS, it was after Johnny Carson retired and there was a huge tussle between him and Jay Leno as to who would replace Carson on this night show. And I was unaware of all this at the time. I was a child, um, well, in, in early adolescence. And um, he, that was when he came on TV in Australia. He was on at about, I was growing up in Sydney. He was on at about 1.30 in the morning 
and all I read was a little piece in a newspaper somewhere that this legendary American television star was going to be on on Australian television. And so I set the old VCR <laughs> recorder. Uh, it's amazing to think that now we can do this all on an iPhone. But I won't date myself by expressing uh, cliched whimsy and amazement at how far technology has come. And I would wake up in the morning before school and watch um, and watch Letterman. And we had a second VCR, and I would tape the, I would tape the highlights of each episode onto mixtapes of Letterman until I had dozens and dozens of four-hour VHS tapes of all the best bits of Letterman. And I don't remember. I don't remember thinking about the television as being something that I wanted to do. I, I remember thinking how extraordinary it was that people could have conversations that were so electrifying and raw in such a public arena. I think that was what appealed to me about it. And for people who, who aren't familiar with Letterman's early stuff, he was an extremely uh, acerbic, biting, undermining, misanthropic guy on TV who was sort of the anti television television host uh and at the time when when everything had traditionally been fairly effete and pleasant on tv in the style of what you might think of as jay leno and jimmy fallon these days letterman was um was a, an unusual kind of firebrand and the, i think it was that moment of danger that made me think if you could spend your life doing that why on earth wouldn't you give an example of the kind of conversation that was fresh and you and dangerous for you at that age um the a classic and this is still on youtube if you want to look it up was madonna came on the show and letterman did a lot of jokes about madonna being promiscuous and so she always refused to come on his show and uh she eventually relented and decided to come on the show she came on and i guess you can leave this but her first words were fuck you dave sit that down <laughs> that's quite an entrance <laughs> yeah We'll have to link to that on YouTube. With <laughs> oh, please do. I mean, if you want the, I mean, I watched it again last year, and it, it it just it holds up so well. And to see him deal with, uh, with her repeatedly telling him to go fuck himself on the air, is extraordinary. You've got these two titanic egos battling each other. And neither of them are backing down, and he's finding a way to do it, and and in a sort of jujitsu move, use the strength of her own provocation against her by winning over the audience using humour uh, to crush her. And that would happen again and again. I remember he was it, it, a few days after that he was interviewing a young Brazilian supermodel who was not giving him anything. She she was coming on, he would ask her a question, and she'd give him a one a one word answer. And uh, at one point. Uh, he said, uh, so what do you uh, eat in, in Brazil? And uh, she said, um, grilled meats. And Letterman said, grilled meats, you, is there a special name for, for that in Brazil? And she goes, mm, barbecue. And people laugh. And he reaches over and pulls out a notepad and a pen and starts writing down a barbecue, barbecue for grilled meats in Brazil. You hear that, Paul? Barbecue. It's called barbecue. That is the name for grilled meats in, in Brazil. And she goes red and she starts, you can see her melting away in her chair. And uh, he says, what else do you like doing? And uh, she says, uh, I like to sleep. And that gets another laugh. And he says, so in addition to being a biological necessity, sleep is a hobby for you. 
And there was something about his ability to his turn of phrase and his ability to put his finger on exactly what was pro- what was problematic about whatever the guest was saying. That I don't know why those two examples jump out for, but it was a it, it was a way of shedding all of the normal normal niceties and finesse that came along with broadcasting and 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 essentially have a boxing arena, an intellectual um, you know sparring arena on TV every night. And. To what extent do you feel that your style is modelled on his or have you gone in a completely different direction? Um, I think I've gone in a different direction uh, based on, I guess, what he would bequeathed to me and people of my generation. So I've sort of t- I've taken the style of what I call having bullshit-free conversations. In other words, I think what he gave me, which, which I still retain, is a refusal to allow a piece of nonsense to go past the catcher and and, and score <laughs> a goal, right? To to always be on on the lookout for putting your finger on some piece of dishonesty or inauthenticity or cliche or groupthink or whatever it might be, and to mm-hmm. and to pull at the thread and to keep tugging at that. Uh, and so I have that, but but I've. I'm, I'm less funny than him and I'm more intellectual than him. I, I don't, that's, that's big noting myself. Uh, and so my, my role was always, I always thought if, if you could do, if you could bring his kind of disarming sense of showmanship and brutal honesty into an arena where it was more targeted towards journalism than celebrity anecdotes, or it was more targeted towards assisting the viewer in figuring out what to think about the world and about big ideas uh, rather than just what to think about this Brazilian supermodel who happens to be sitting on the couch, then that would be the ultimate best of both worlds. And I guess then the person who rapidly came along and inspired me a second time was John Stewart, because John Stewart managed to do that on the mm-hmm. Daily Show. He managed to take the um, the the hard up edge of of what Letterman had created and apply it to news media instead of to to celebrity entertainment. So, how easy has it been for you to get close to that? in terms of getting the opportunity to have the kind of conversations that you want to have in via what's these days called traditional media, television and radio? Uh, it's been hard, but it's always hard, and it's a lot easier now. So I think initially it's also easier for people who know what they want to do. I mean, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew what I – I mean, as a profession, it's, it's a bit difficult because if you know that you are, <laughs> that you want to have – interesting, funny, creative conversations with people about big ideas. Well, that's all very well. But in the, in the 1990s, <laughs> before podcasting, <laughs> I never opened the jobs, the jobs offered page of the newspaper and saw wanted person to have large, interesting conversations about big ideas in a whimsical fashion with uh, newsmakers and celebrities. I'm just trying to imagine your career counsellor's face at school. <laughs> exactly. That's right. So I went, into, I went into broadcasting. I basically thought to myself, there are two ways that I can get into this industry, uh, journalism or stand-up comedy. And stand-up comedy just struck me as such a thankless slog. I mean, who would want to be going around from town to town, staying in crappy motels with semen stains on the bed, going out to clubs with 20 people, in them who are all drunk and they're judging your comedy and what are the kinds of things that I would want to be funny about would not be the kinds of things that they would be interested in anyway. 
And if there'd been a really vibrant alternative comedy scene, I think, when I was coming of age in the late 90s and early 2000s, at least if, I was aware, if I'd been aware of one, then that might have been different and I might have gone into comedy if, for example, Louis C.K. had existed um, and people like him. But at the time, it was the ascendancy of Jerry Seinfeld, who I think is a brilliant craftsman as a stand-up comic, but, I, but I'm not that style of, you know, writing the perfect joke about why aeroplane bathrooms are so small. That's not, I'm not good at it and I'm not interested in it. Um, so I thought, well, I'll go into journalism. I'll go into broadcasting on the production side where there are actually jobs. And that way, worst comes to worst, I'll be able to make a living as a journalist behind the scenes. And best comes to best, I'll be able to use my broadcasting chops to get some experience on the air somehow and, uh, and shuffle over from being behind the scenes to, to being on-air talent, which is what I knew that I was good at. I mean, it was, I think if you're a performer, you do know from an early age, when you ask, like, when did I look at t- a TV and think, um, you know, I really want to be on that, it may, that may have been earlier than, uh, than Letterman and Jon Stewart, but what it would have occurred to me as is, at school, I make people laugh. I enjoy uh, teasing people. I enjoy being able to use words to cut and to thrust and to parry and to to, to find humour in things. And I, I appreciate the ridiculous. And who wouldn't want to laugh? I mean, it's I once heard Ricky Gervais be, being asked the question, is laughing the most important thing in the world to you? And he was gobsmacked that the question would even arise for somebody <laughs> i mean of course it is he said i mean why would you not why would you not just want to maximize the portion of your life which is spent laughing it's a good point I mean, it's, the, it's the with the exception of perhaps having an orgasm it's the best thing that we ever do right i mean yeah, of course he would to him it's a no-brainer of course you would want to be a comedian and surround yourself with, with comedians um and so I guess I sort of felt that, but I, but being a person who really loved the world of ideas and being a bookish kid who loved reading and so on, I also loved, and being a very political kid, I mean, I was reading uh, the Communist Manifesto when I was about eight years old or something. When the, when the Berlin Wall fell, I wanted to know what, what was going on on the other side of the world, so I picked up Marx and Engels. <laughs> so I, I was a bit of a nerd and a, and a very good student. So all of that is a, is a roundabout way of saying, how do you get from A to B and actually how difficult has it been to, to get into it? It's been difficult because I've had to, I feel like the sailboat of life is constantly tacking in a direction that is away from um, being a successful on-air personality. Like that, that, that just never happens by accident. And if it does happen to someone by accident, it doesn't last for very long. You can't think of many people who have 40 or 50 year-long careers in uh, you know, as personalities in the media who accidentally stumbled into it. Um, you might have occasional flashes in the pan, but but not not, not for the long haul. So I've, I feel like I sort of made the right decision by going into journalism. I got a job on a radio station as, a, as a, an assistant producer for an AM talk radio host and managed to convince them to let me do sort of wacky things like abseil or repel, as they say in America, on the side of a skyscraper for charity and broadcast from there. And I was good at doing impersonations, so I do on-air impersonations. And, I'm, yeah, I managed to give up being a producer and start doing funny voices and writing and voicing comedy on, the, on Australia's biggest talk radio network at the time. Um, and that then was sort of the launching pad for me to, uh, to get into TV uh, where I, I was the host of 
uh, Australian Idol backstage back when the when Idol was the biggest show in the country, uh, and that then sort of gave me a launching pad to move to New York. And we can get all into all that later if you want. But I guess that my two points about getting started would be a it's a well three points. A it's easier now because there's podcasting and everyone has a video camera on their phone, so they can do it, which we didn't have. B if you can't get straight to the to the end game of being successful on air, then start off air and migrate over. And C, which is in contradiction to B, one part of me thinks actually I would have led an easier life if I'd just gone straight into stand-up comedy and had not had been able to, sh- to slough off any preconceptions that I might have had about what that ought to have meant and what kind of comedy I would have been doing. And if I'd just spoken my mind on stage, that probably actually would have been a more direct route to on-air success than the one that I took because I was constantly trying to take the slightly safer option. And it it took me until I was well into my 30s, well, not well into, until I was in my 30s before I got a a major national platform on HuffPost Live. So how did that come about? That came about because I was living in New York. I moved to New York and continued doing radio uh, comedy sketches, political satirical sketches for Australian radio from New York. I basically just convinced the host of the show, Mike Carlton, who was who, who was on 2UE in Sydney, to let me... He was hosting the morning show from 6 to 9 in the morning. So I said, instead of us, instead of me coming in after you get off the air, reading the newspapers, writing comedy sketches, recording them in the afternoon and then putting them to air tomorrow morning, why don't you let me move to New York where I can study at UCB Theatre, the Upright Citizens Brigade, because I was big into improv comedy, I can live in New York and I'll read the Australian newspapers when they come online at midnight or one in the morning Sydney time, which is eight or nine in the morning New York time, and I'll spend the day writing the sketch. And then when you get into the office at four or five in the morning, you'll already have a sketch written and I'll record the audio in New York, uh, email the audio files just in my bedroom, email the audio files to the technicians at the radio station, have them cut it together at five or six in the morning, and it can go to where after the 7 a.m. news, and it'll be topical based on that day's news. And the fool bought that, bought that clear ruse. It was a good pitch. <laughs> it's a good pitch. It's a good pitch. And I, I, uh, so I, I was able to live, and thank God he did and was generous enough to do that because I was able to get a foreign correspondence visa and move to, to New York, and even though I wasn't permitted to work yet there, I was permitted to open bank accounts and sign leases and all those sorts of things that one couldn't do if you were there on a, on a tourist visa. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then when I came back to do Australian Idol, that was actually after I'd already moved to, to New York, that was a big enough feather in my cap that I was then in a position to be able to apply for a, a tourist visa, um, sorry, a work visa, a work visa they call an extraordinary talent visa. Oh, yes. And uh, <laughs> which unfortunately is merely notated on your passport with the letters O one, oh. but which I very much wished oh, yeah. had a huge yeah. red stamp change that. saying extraordinary talent yeah. emblazoned across the front of the passport oh. and possibly on my forehead yeah, yeah, yeah. as well as I walk through security at JFK airport. Um, and so I got, I got a, a visa, I got an agent and this would be my other piece of advice I always give to young people trying to start out. Do not underestimate the value of an agent. If you talk to people who've been around for a long time, they always dismiss agents and managers and say, oh, well, you know, young people want agents and managers, but really everything that you ever get in life is going to be your own doing. Yeah, (laughs) 
But only a person with a good agent or manager would have the luxury of saying that because the first step is get a headshot, get a reel, get a bio, format the bio properly depending on where you are. It's different in each country and send that out to a bunch of agents and get an agent because that was then a godsend. And I, that, I just started going on endless auditions in New York and there are multiple, multiple auditions a day, four or five auditions a day. I'd get called back to quite a lot of them. And I'd book quite a lot of them. So I was booking quite a lot of, this is all um, hosting or presenting auditions, this, you know, for corporate videos, for ads, for things like that, for voiceovers and so on. And uh, I got a show, this is all a lead up to Half Post Live, I'll get there eventually. I got a show on Discovery Science Channel, which um, was a national weekly uh, sort of smart arsey look at the latest science and tech news. And I'd travel around America doing stories about, um, you know, incredible breakthroughs that were happening in in science and tech. I went to the astronaut training camp that Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic um, people who sign up have to go to and went in one of those machines that spins you around in a centrifuge and all that stuff. It was great fun. Um, but this was 2008, 2009, 2010, and the financial crisis was smashing uh, American capitalism it was not a good time to be a small, expensive show on a boutique network that also can't go into reruns because you're talking about the about science news, so you can't syndicate <laughs> it and make extra money. <laughs> although, although, funnily enough, Mark, the Greek, I'm a celebrity in Greece because the Greek the Greek national television network didn't have any money, and I got an email from a friend of mine who was a Greek Australian girl. <laughs> Uh, who I used to be friends with in primary school, who now lives in Greece. She was like, I cannot turn on the TV without seeing you. And, and, this, and this, was going, this was as recently as like 2015. They were still showing 2008 episodes about science breakthroughs on Greek national TV. Can um, you walk down the street so, in Athens? <laughs> uh, I, just, I just went to Athens, actually, and I did, not get, I did not get mobbed. So perhaps my celebrity there has been somewhat overblown. And so that show ended and I, I spent the, the subsequent year wandering around in the wilderness going for auditions and so on. And, and it was uh, sort of the, the luck of the draw that Ariana Huffington was trying to launch in the video space, uh, something akin to what she'd done to totally disrupt the uh, print media space mm-hmm. about five years earlier with the launch of the Huffington Post, which had become the most read blog in the world at the time. And HuffPost Live was a natural fit. They needed six uh, hosts to to host 12 hours of daily content streaming live every day out of New York. And that was just one of those um, sort of the skies open and the light shines down because it was exactly the sort of thing that I was alluding to at the beginning of our conversation where it's a mix of entertainment uh, and also highbrow stuff. It was sort of, it was a, it was a job almost tailor-made for me in terms of requiring an aptitude for improvisation and smart arsiness and showmanship, but also a certain amount of intellectual heft and a desire to break down complicated ideas in ways that are, um, are comprehensible to, to regular people. And you had some, some pretty remarkable conversations, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, HuffPost had a brand that was huge. It was one of the most read websites in the world, bar none. It was launching video, the most audacious attempt at doing online television that had ever been attempted in terms of just the financial 
size of it and the and the logistical scope of it. Uh, three studios in New York. I mean, a single studio, but three sets on a on a huge soundstage in New York. Two in Los Angeles. A team in LA. A team in in New York. Um, you know, twelve hours a day of content, five days a week. You know, production team of well over a hundred people. That that enabled us to 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 get good bookers and for those good bookers to get us basically all the people who would ever do any media and some who really wouldn't i mean p- people like stephen king the novelist who almost never does interviews i got to sit down with mm-hmm. him for a half hour um i mean paul krugman nobel prize winning economist jeremy irons mm. russell brand susan sarandon uh, you know and you know the queen prince of serbia and you know the Kennedys and and so on. So a huge range of of both celebrities and also just generally important people and senators and members of of cabinet. So it was a it was a fascinating kind of attempt at tap dancing because I would host anywhere from three to three and four on average half hour segments every day, and there's no way that you can be adequately prepped for all that. So the the spirit of the project was not that you're doing a a highly well-informed BBC style interrogation of the person. It was more, um, let's try to figure out what is interesting and unusual about this person that will yield something that they don't get to impart in a conventional six to eight minute um, late night Letterman style interview. Let's give them the time to be able to explore things with us and to follow rabbit holes that they never normally get to to talk about and in some cases that works really well some, in some in some in a lot of cases it takes the first 20 minutes of a conversation just to warm people up enough that the final 10 minutes yield something and then there are very 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 few few platforms if any in mainstream media that allow you to do that and what did you learn as an interviewer from working with people at that level and in, in that format um listen I mean, listening is very important. <laughs> I know it's a cliche, <laughs> but it's amazing how few people do. It's amazing how often, and by listen, I'll explain what I mean. What I mean is if you ask the interview interviewee a, a question and they answer in a way that might point at something that's slightly more interesting than whatever your subsequent question is, don't ask your subsequent question. I mean, follow that. In other words, don't just don't just listen. Actually, hear and hear not just what they're saying, but hear your little voice in the back of your head that pipes up and says, "What?" I think I think in in common conversation we ignore that a lot. Yeah, you know, we ignore the the curious instinct in us because we think maybe we're supposed to understand what the other person's saying, or we're supposed to know better, or we're too busy thinking about the next thing that we're going to ask or how we look or how we're sitting or whether our hair's okay if we're on TV. You know, you've got to find a way to ignore all of that and be thinking at a pace that can be, can, can be juggling a tremendous amount of, uh, of real-time input, right? Do I go in this direction? Do I go in that direction? Do we stay on this subject? Yeah. Do I bring up the next subject? Do we have a clip that I'm supposed to play about something? Do we have comments that are coming in from people who are watching live that are worth reading out? Is the producer in the control room telling me anything in my ear? I mean, they never would to me because they knew that I hated it, so I tried to tell them to shut up as much as possible unless it was really, really urgent. 
um, you know, other 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 presenters love it and want to be talked all the way through an interview, and that's quite common. But um, for me, I just find it distracting. Uh, and you're it's a it's basically a game of high speed triage, right? Where all there are, there are an unlimited number of inputs coming at you, and you're triaging in real time. And if you're not alert and listening when you're doing that, then either the whole thing will fall apart, or more likely. Your, your sense of self-preservation will kick in and you'll become boring and predictable and you'll, you'll ask the next question that's on the list or the next most obvious thing yeah. to say. I think if you... I've never really thought about this before. It's a good question. Like, what did I learn? I think I learned to trust the lack of a safety net and trust the tap dance and just kind of tumble, tumble with them down whatever rabbit hole they want to... You know, fate wants you to go down. And to have faith that if the whole mm. thing falls apart completely, that will also be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's like this for you, but listening to that description, it made me think, well, as a coach, very often I'm on the, you know, I've got that voice at the back of my mind going, hang on a minute, did he just say what? Mm. And sometimes I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to ask this even though it's could be a really dumb question, mm. but very and sometimes it is. But very often, that's the question that unlocks something interesting. Mm. Is it is it like that for you? Is, is yes. there because you've got a lot more people watching? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think allowing yourself to not. I think allowing yourself, <clears throat> excuse me, to not care about sounding stupid is a corollary of allowing yourself to not care about failing or making the yeah. interview not work as well or bombing. Yeah, I think they're I think they're essential. As long as you're trying not to let things go off the rails, you're always going to be playing it too safe. I mean, it reminds me of I can't remember exactly how we got into it, but one of the biggest news events that I created when I was at Half Post Live was an interview that I did with Jeremy Irons, where in and this again comes back to having time to allow people to air their thoughts and to uh, and to not feel like they're, they're second-guessing themselves in an interview situation. It was the 31st minute of what was supposed to be a 30-minute interview. And he was talking about tolerance and how he just wants everyone to live and let live. And I thought, I could wrap it here, but I really wonder whether or not he thinks that extends to same-sex marriage because the same-sex marriage decision, I think, had just come down from the Supreme Court in the United States. And he's an old guy. He's conservative seeming. He's British. And kind of, <laughs> we know all that. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't mean that as a pejorative, but I just mean he seems aristocratic in a way that may not be fully hip <laughs> and jiggy with uh, with the with the cooler with the cooler kids. And so I asked him and about gay marriage, and he paused, and he he said that he thinks it's a tricky one. And again, I was sort of confronted with, well, do I leave it at that? Do I sort of let that fly? But I kept pushing and he equivocated for a while and then he ended up saying, could a man not marry another man in order to avoid the inheritance tax? No, could a, man, could a father not marry his son? to avoid the inheritance tax because he'd then be passing on his estate to his husband instead of his son. And, <laughs> <laughs> and my brain, and talk about an act of triage, right, the number of things that I'm thinking then, 
you know, I can mock that, I can ridicule it, or I can inquire about it, I can ask where he's heard it, did he come up mm-hmm. with it himself? So I just sort of, I just, I just as authentic as I, as authentically as I could try to be, just sort of said, I mean, that, that's got to be a red herring. I think there would be, you know, if, if that happened, if that was happening on a widespread scale and you would just legislate against that. And uh, no, I said, I said, yeah, that's right, because there are laws against incest. And he said, but it's not incest if it's two men, because incest laws are there to prevent the birth of uh, incest, uh, you know, genetically damaged children. And so... Then we, I won't relay the entire thing. People can probably find it online somewhere. We will add it to the show notes next time. Next time we're yeah. on. You, you may actually have to get have to view it from my, my own reel, which is embarrassing because Huffo, one of the tragedies of HuffPost Live was that when the entire thing was pulled, all of those archives uh, were pulled. So only I have, oh. have access to, to my own copies anymore. But anyway, suffice it to say, it ended up being front page of, ta- of the British tabloids and uh, and big news. It was on BBC News. I remember sitting there one night thinking, right. oh, look, <laughs> look at that. Right. And, uh, yeah, Charlie Brooker put it in his top ten uh, things of the year and his year-end roundup and so on. And it reminded me of just how uh, blown out of proportion the media feeding upon the media can be and how you so – that's the, that's the first kind of lesson. Like here is just a guy who was thinking aloud in a fairly yeah. silly way because he felt comfortable with me because we were just sitting on a couch talking. But the, the media portrays it as if he went on a on an anti-gay rant oh. uh, or like he woke up in the morning and thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to come out and, and talk about estate inheritance <laughs> taxation for future gay couples, you know. Um, and secondly, it reminded me that you only get to those points if you're really willing to kind of keep pulling at that string and or, you know, to mix metaphors, going down that rabbit hole and trusting your inner curiosity because it would have been entirely easy for me to bail on that line of questioning much earlier and just accept his, his question as uh, his, his original response to the question as being sufficient. So coming back to your point about the media feeding on the media, I mean, not only did you with HuffPost live, it was deliberately positioned as at the juncture of old and new media. I mean, what did you learn about how that those two fit together or, or don't? Um, well, so much has happened since then, Mark, that it's hard to differ. It's hard to put my mind back in the, uh, in the position that it was even just 12 months ago, let alone five years ago when we were launching HuffPost Live, um, because new media has become a really, uh, problematic at the moment, hasn't it? I mean, I think in the wake of the election of Donald Trump and Brexit and the proliferation of concerns about the way that Facebook uh, prioritizes articles, whether or not they're actually seriously fake or whether or not they're just misleading about the siloing of our own, um, of of our own, our own news and the inability of, 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 of ordinary media consumers to find a diverse range of different, um, different news sources and perspectives. All of that has now sort of tainted my initial, uh, enthusiasm about new media, but when you when you think about the original promise, well, let's let's rewind to to 2012. All right, you've got a world in which the print newspapers are in total meltdown. This has since been reversed, thankfully. But the high quality newspapers are just hemorrhaging money because there's no more classified ads. Everyone's getting their news from the internet, and news television is pretty appalling. Um, you've got Fox News in the ascendancy in the United States in terms of all news. 
spreading largely nonsense. And there's no real outlet for people who want in-depth. It's a little bit different in the UK because you've got the BBC. But in the, in the States, there was no opportunity for, for in-depth uh, television examination of world affairs. Uh, and into that space, the Huffington Post thinks, if you were an alien and you came down to planet Earth and you tried to reinvent without knowing anything about the history of television or the history of radio or broadcasting at all, you tried to reinvent, right, how are we going to have conversations with a globalised world in which the internet now exists, in which huge populations are connected and enthusiastic about being connected, how are we going to foster those conversations about what's going on in the world and inform people? You would not, after all of your diligent research, sit down and conclude to yourself, I think the best option is for in the evenings, an elderly white man should sit at a desk and talk at people for 30 (laughs) minutes and tell them what's going on in the world, and that should be that. Um, That's not the era in which we live anymore. So what would it look like? Well, it would be more participatory, wouldn't it? It would be more bottom-up, more grassroots, be more interactive. It would be much faster and more spontaneous. You wouldn't be waiting until 7 p.m. or whenever the news comes on in your local jurisdiction to consume the news of the day. It would be at your fingertips all the time. And it'd be much more diverse. There'd be much more, I don't mean diverse in a racial or ethnic sense, it'd just be, uh, there'd be a much wider uh, set of interests that you could pluck from because there's essentially unlimited bandwidth. You're not fighting over 30 minutes of broadcast television. You've got yeah. a huge number yeah. of different outlets and a huge, a huge amount of time. And that was the conceit of HuffPost Live. Let's have interesting, informed, sometimes funny conversations about what's going on in the world and let's not try to break news. Let's not be a news gathering uh, service because we don't have the resources for that. We're not going to have bureaus in Baghdad. But let's do what everybody is doing about the news anyway, which is talk about it, but elevate that in a way that is stimulating and informative and captivating, and you never quite know what you're going to get. Now, there were initially, I think it worked really, really well. In, in 2012, 2013, 2014, was, frankly, fantastic. People loved it. It was a place where celebrities, which celebrities loved coming on because they knew that it was, that A, it was going to be fun, B, it wasn't going to be got journalism, and C, they were going to have time to explain what they want to explain or to talk, to talk in a way where they're just not, yeah. uh, not ushered off the stage by a band after just a few minutes. The, <laughs> the problem was that HuffPost Live also didn't iterate quickly enough and didn't keep up with the way that video was going because HuffPost, HuffPost Live basically made a gamble that people would not, be, not consume all of their media from a, a selection of different... Uh, sorry, that they would not consume all of their media from single sources anymore, that they would be getting media from a bunch of different uh, places so that people would have a Fox News app and they dip into that sometimes. Now, we, we know because of what's happened since that Facebook essentially demolished that model and has found a way of delivering to people exactly the juicy nuggets of media that give them the squirts of dopamine <laughs> that keep them happy and hooked to Facebook. So it's almost impossible for, for rival media content creators to get, a, to get a look in edgeways between Facebook, you know, Apple slash iTunes and Google and that would have been fine for HuffPost Live had we maintained a senior executive level 
uh, focus and commitment to, to again tap dancing and uh, and being quick off the mark. Um, unfortunately, we didn't, and we found ourselves ending up holding a a system that was too reminiscent of the old media. That was still actually too much like it smelled too much like the conventional set with the good lighting and the makeup and the cameras and the auto cue, the, the teleprompter and so on, uh, in, in an era in which by about 2015 and certainly by 2016, it was obvious that online video was, was barreling uh, like a runaway train in the direction of fast, lo-fi, on the ground. I, mean, I guess this sort of began with the Arab Spring, actually, and became, uh, you, you know, the, the dominant mode of video online uh, within a few years after that. Far, you know, quick, disorganised, shabby, but real. And HuffPost Live, unfortunately, never managed to grab that and, had, and retained its polish up until its dying days. So, that, so just to button your question, I guess that for me is part of what I'm trying to do in my podcast now and and. I don't have the resources to do it in my podcast, but I think I will do it on television in some capacity within the next few years if someone will let me, is genuinely find a way to combine <clears throat> old and new media, to combine the, the the flashiness and polish and credibility of old media with the uh, spontaneity and uh, and rambunctiousness uh, and, and, and speed of the, uh, and inclusivity and interactivity and participation of, of new media. I mean, this, is, this even has parallels to, to politics. I think about the U.S. election between Trump and, and Clinton as being a kind of political analogue of this old and new media divide, right? I mean, Trump is Twitter mm-hmm. and Hillary Clinton is the BBC newsreader yeah. in the evening telling you what's going on in the world. And while she's doing that, Trump is hitting her over the hair with, head with a chair, <laughs> and and she's and then she's looking up the rule book about how to, about how to respond with the correct punch. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, you know, he's so he's smashed her over the head with a with a bottle of wine. There's something in there's something going on in the media which is akin to that political phenomenon, which is people um, people craving an an upset to the staid and the normal. But what that is leading to is a la- is a loss of credibility and the kind of fake news thing and people being adrift uh, and and people not having common uh, sets of of assumptions and beliefs and and commitments and loyalties, which is tearing some would say America I would say America apart, and we have to find a way of combining credibility with spontaneity in a way that's neither uh, boring nor so interesting that it's impossible to figure out what it what it means. So maybe this is a, a good point to talk about your podcast. Yeah. Because, you know, the strapline for that is make debate healthy again. Yes. Maybe you could say a bit about your aims with the podcast and also your experience of, you know, having your own show and producing it as, as, as opposed to being in someone else's studio. Mm. Yeah, so We The People Live began as an idea that there were a lot of podcasts which were just people talking to each other in a garage, the Mark Maron <clears throat> model of podcasting. And I wanted to put on a show. I thought a show would be nice, a live show. So we found a bar in Brooklyn and we got three people in the bar with a live audience and we recorded them talking about the news of the week, basically. We would usually get a comic, 
an informed political thinker and a wildcard person. And I would host, the audience could ask questions and uh, they could comment. And it was sort of like a 21st century like Donahue show for millennials about the news, a, a little bit like real time with Bill Maher, Bill Maher's show, but much looser and drunker. <laughs> and I did a sort of version of this show on HuffPost Live every week called Cocktail Ch- uh, Chatter, uh, where we would just talk about the week's events. And I, I really liked that format and I thought, well, why not just have that in my back pocket as something, as my own entity where there's no editorial authority from above, not that there was much on HuffPost Live either, I could pretty much do whatever I wanted, um, but where I would own the show, could take it in whatever direction we wanted to. And what I learned over the course of, we've been doing it for two years now, we've crashed well through our, I think, three millionth um, uh, listener, and we've hit the, the number one spot on the iTunes comedy ranking on several occasions, uh, which not many podcasts have managed to do. And I think the reason for that is people actually, it turned out, don't care about the format. They don't listen to any fewer numbers when we don't do a live show than when we do do a live show. They don't listen to any more numbers when I have more than one guest than when I have one guest. Mm-hmm. Some of the most popular episodes are me just doing the Mark Marin thing and talking to somebody because that's what everyone's doing. So the thing that I've learned from the podcast is people want good content and good ideas. They want to hear minds doing to each other what Letterman and Madonna were, were doing. Were, you know, they want to hear people battling, battling through things. And so I'm actually very heartened by the success of We The People Live in the same way that I'm heartened by the success of some of my, the podcast of some of my colleagues and friends. Um, some people might be familiar with Sam Harris, the, the atheist um, philosopher and podcaster and, and writer who gained some notoriety on Bill Maher's show for attacking Ben Affleck uh, when Ben Affleck uh, accused him of being an Islamophobe. Um, he's a friend of mine and a, a, a sometime and more than once podcast guest on my podcast. Um, Joe Rogan has the, by many measures, the most successful podcast in the world. And I've done his show four or five times and he's done my show. And these are people who are having long in-depth intellectual conversations about the most important things that are going on in the world. So much as one half of me despairs at new media and at the amount of crap out there, another part of me thinks it's actually never been more available. I mean, I'm currently residing in New Hampshire because I just had a couple of twins and so I'm on paternity leave. And so I get to drive long distances when I go down to Boston to pick someone up at an airport or something. And I am spoiled for choice in terms of what to listen to. I mean, just five years ago, those would be boring drives where you would listen to whatever was on the radio or maybe you would have your one or two podcasts a week that you really loved. Now there is just a cornucopia of different things that I could be listening to. So, yeah, I mean, that doesn't really answer your question about my podcast, I suppose, but but if, if my podcast can carve out its own realm in that landscape where one of the taglines is make debate healthy again, and that originally, just as an aside about that tagline, <laughs> that was originally an idea about, and by the way, this was, I, I thought that up before Donald Trump had his campaign slogan of make America great again. It's not a play on that. It was actually just make debate healthy again, because debate had become so canned, had become so predictable, had become so, uh, so staid. I mean, you watch, you watch debates, whether they're on cable news or whether they're on, whether they're political debates 
between politicians vying for office. And you can almost hear the rehearsed lines being plucked out of the candidate's brain in response to what it was that was being asked. For a start, there's no time. They don't need time. I mean, cable, Sean Hannity on Fox News will interview somebody for three minutes and eviscerate them with a couple of uh, well-plucked, well-written points that his producers have given him, and the person has no time to, to respond. But it's not it, the point of Make Debate Healthy Egan was not just about allowing people to have the time and space to actually engage with each other's ideas outside of the, 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 the boxes that the sort of intellectual and political boxes that we normally expect people to reside within. It was also just about me as an interlocutor having the freedom to debate people and not have to present an impartial face, not having to do the journalist's thing of uh, claiming not to have an opinion about the thing that the person is talking about. You know, the, one of the pernicious things I think that had happened, it's gotten much better since Trump was elected because the media, the good media has stepped up to the plate, good media meaning uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the BBC, uh, the Guardian, has stepped up to the plate and is actually much more eager and keen to be uh, um, to be what would previously have been seen as being biased, but is in fact actually just having a bias towards the truth. Um, and there had been a sort of sense that the the best thing that a journalist should do is is sort of find the the halfway point between whichever whatever two opinions they had in front of them. So if there was a debate between Al Franken, the, the senator who used to be a writer on Saturday Night Live and performer, says that, you know, the Republicans on climate change, are, are they'll have a, a one guest who is supportive of climate science and another guest who disputes climate science. And this is a little bit like having a television discussion about where babies come from and on the one hand, having a gynecologist, and on the other, having a stork theory of baby <laughs> delivery advocate, and thinking that the best thing for the journalist to do is to simply give them eclam and then let you decide. <laughs> That's not the job of a journalist, and it's not my job as a host as a host of the show. So I do regard the the, the point of the show of We the People Live to to be to have a bullshit free conversations, if I can say that uh, on, on your show, bullshit-free conversations about the most important important things. And, you know, one of the things I like about it is that you do own your point of view, but it's not just you talking to your friends. And in fact, you know, some of the most memorable episodes, it's quite uncomfortable listening because you, you are Good. debating somebody who's got a very different viewpoint for your own. But I think you succeed in, in terms of the tagline that it doesn't just become you against them you know you mm. you do sometimes feel like you bend over backwards to give them the opportunity to put their viewpoint across in mm. a way that you're not just locking horns i mean how do you approach a conversation like that um easy actually give them the uh, do exactly what you just said give them the the greatest be as generous as possible towards the most towards the strongest uh, interpretation of their position because I'm not going to win them over. Like, I'm under no illusions about that. I'm probably not going to win over the person who I'm talking to because I'm probably talking to them because they have st pretty strong uh, views about whatever it is. Yeah. But there is an audience out there who is not already on my side and may, in fact, be on their side, but less stridently than they are. And... I do think that it's important. I mean, I did debating in university, and one of the principles of debating is uh, 
you know, attack the strongest version of your opponent's argument. Because if you attack the weakest version of your opponent's argument, then the argument still stands. You can spend all day attacking bits and pieces of the argument, and it's like it's like plucking leaves off the tree of the argument. But unless you get the roots out, huh. you, the argument the tree still stands. So, uh, you know, I was actually just having a, an argument on Twitter the other day uh, by someone who I'll, I'll tell you this example because it might be illustrative. A Twitter thread went viral um, recently, in which a guy was saying that he had a slam dunk argument against. Uh, opponents of abortion, he said, when he encounters religious conservatives who, uh, who disapprove of abortion, he gives them this thought experiment. Imagine you're in a fertility clinic and you're walking through the hall and suddenly a fire alarm goes off. There's a fire. You, as you're rushing out with the flames licking at your heels, you open a, a door and you see a five-year-old child uh, in the corner of the room, or a two-year-old child in the corner of the room crying, and on the other corner of the room, there are a thousand embryos frozen, uh, and you can only carry one of them. Uh, which do you take? And he said, of course people take the, the, born, the, the child, therefore illustrating in his eyes that they're full of nonsense when they claim that an embryo is actually a human life because... Uh, if an embryo was the, had the same moral value as he, they would take a thousand embryos and not the baby. And whilst I am supportive of, it, of abortion being a choice that the, a woman and, and, and that the medical profession should make, not that lawmakers should make, I found that <clears throat> entirely unconvincing because it's the worst, it's the weakest, ver- the weakest version of the anti-abortion argument is uh, a fertilized embryo has exactly the same moral value as a grown human being. Right? I mean, very few people, they might say that rhetorically, Christian conservatives, but very few people re- genuinely believe that. And if they do, they're stupid. I think it's, it's, that is obviously untrue, that a five-day-old blastocyst has the same rights to personhood as a two-year-old baby. But the difficulty in anti-abortionists, I mean, I could just say, well, what if there's a, a, an infant, an unborn fetus who is a week overdue and another baby who was born a week early and the only difference is that one is outside the womb and one is inside the womb but neurologically and developmentally the one who's inside the womb has greater development and a greater capacity for conscious thought is it okay to insert a needle into the into the the woman and and terminate the life of the of the baby in utero but and that's totally fine but it's but it would be literal order to kill the other one now those kinds of cases are obviously much, much trickier morally. And until and unless you're willing to grapple with those, and until and unless if you're speaking with an interlocutor who opposes abortion, you are willing to wade into those waters and and cede some of that ground, you're not going to get anywhere. Because all you're doing is you're ridiculing the most ridiculous part of your opponent's uh, position. You're immediately, you're not only, it's not only intellectually dishonest, it also doesn't do anything to actually undermine the best cases for the for the argument that you're trying to bring down. And, and perhaps most importantly, it needlessly alienates the person who you're trying to have an intellectual conversation with and you're right. trying to find common right. ground with. And if you're genuinely interested in finding common ground in making debate healthy again, so to speak, I always do try to come in with an attitude of, all right, let me grant you the maximum number of things that I can grant you in the most generous possible light. And now 
here's where I disagree with you, given that we've said all of those things. And you know what, Mark? People are responsive to that. They, under, they, they appreciate yeah. Yeah. The, the attempt to reach across the aisle and then the disagreements are, are sort of abstract intellectual disagreements that you can try to muddle through together because, because they know that they're dealing with um, an honest partner, if that makes some kind of sense. And frankly, I just find it more interesting. I, find, I just find it much, much more interesting because 98% of all of the debates and all of the uh, conversations that we get through most of the media are, as I say, canned and kind of pre-thought out and are, and are not doing this. So I think it, I find it really refreshing and I think my, my listeners clearly find it refreshing and people on Twitter find it refreshing to hear conversations that I can have with people where we're willing to step outside of the ideological or partisan boxes and find whatever common ground we can and grant each other as, as many th- as many points as we can and then still find disagreements, then those disagreements are the actual juicy ones. And, you know, you say you're not going to change their mind, but has there ever been a point in one of these conversations where someone has changed their mind, either you or the other person? Someone asked me on Twitter recently after one, I think, one of my most recent episodes was with Ben Shapiro, who's a popular, he's the editor of The Daily Wire, which is a conservative uh, online publication here, and he's, he appears on, uh, on cable news a lot. Um, and he's an ardent tweeter. He's a very conservative young guy. And someone tweeted at me snarkily afterwards, did anything that Ben say change your mind? And I thought about that, and I replied, nothing changed my mind 180 degrees because that's not usually how the ideas of thoughtful people operate Mm. because you've hopefully already factored in such a large amount of data into your ideas that a brief conversation with someone is unlikely to upend all of that. I mean, it would only be able to do that if it was something on which I was woefully ignorant, right? And then then that would be fine. If, If we're talking about about quantum theory and I speak with a scientist about it <laughs> and he tells me something I had no idea about, well, then I will completely change my mind at the drop of a hat. But if we're talking about something which is uh, a moral quandary or a political conundrum or a, or a cultural issue that I've thought about a little bit, then it's unlikely that in, in one hour, a one conversation someone's going to completely change my mind. But what I said to the person on Twitter was, he changed my mind a bit about some things and that's what conversations are for. Mm-hmm. Right? It doesn't require, you're asking too much of conversation to expect a 180-degree flip. Life is about, I mean, human society and human communication and human culture is about engaging with one another in a way that we're slowly ratcheting up towards some kind of greater understanding, They're riffing off of one another, bouncing off of one another, listening to each other, yeah, that's what you say, but what about this? Well, yeah, that's interesting, but what about this? Well, yeah, that's interesting, but what about... I mean, that is the history of civilization, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That's that's what we're sort of all here for. So there are a couple of big issues that I could sort of point to and say that I've changed my mind on. Um, Gun control in America, for example, I've always been... I I believe there shouldn't be guns uh, in, in, in any society that, you know, farmers should be able to have shotguns and people who live in remote areas should be able to have shotguns for self-defense perhaps, but that, that there should not be widespread um, urban possession of firearms in any, uh, any, anywhere. But there are so many guns in America at the moment and the issue has become so toxic and so sized that I actually don't favour, I don't think a gun buyback or, or massive curtailment of 
firearms in the United States is feasible or even desirable given the culture here. So that's one example. Another would be, might be Medicare for all, having a universal healthcare system in the United States until the U.S. can get its um, the, the cost of its medical system under control, the idea that a Bernie Sanders person follower might have that we should just extend Medicare to everybody and create a sort of national health service in the United States would bankrupt <laughs> the entire country. So, that, so there are there are practical issues on which I've been disabused of my formerly idealistic ideas through conversations with people. But in general, I'm not looking for for changing of minds. I'm looking for for nudging of of curiosities. And where would you like to go next with all of this? You've been on quite the journey so far. What what's next for you? Uh, well, th- my immediate plans are to go back into mainstream broadcasting. I'm going to continue the podcast naturally, but um, we're working on something at the moment which will which will uh, entail conventional radio too. I do still think, I think we can get a little bit carried away with this whole new media mm-hmm. business and forget the dominance of the way that most people still get their media. Most people, the vast majority of people, are not getting in their cars and Bluetoothing this podcast <laughs> through their car system. <laughs> They're turning on the radio. And in a country like the UK or Australia, they are turning on the BBC or the ABC. So um, that is my next focus. I want to I want to be, I want to build a a persona on uh, public radio, initially at least in, in Australia, and find a way to, to break down interesting and complicated stories in ways that people who are eating their cereal and getting their kids ready for school can, can understand. Um, and, but ultimately, I do, I do still think that what I was alluding to earlier about combining old media and new media and combining the credibility of establish of the establishment press with the speed and interestingness and uh, craziness of online press that someone's going to figure out a way to do that and nobody has everyone gives li- everyone pays lip service to it right you know you turn on CNN and they do a story and then the announcer says now let's uh, let's see what Twitter has to say. You know, uh, bum, bumhead seventy seven in Tulsa, Oklahoma said, "I do not like President Trump. He is a bad man." Now, <laughs> this adds nothing to the conversation. <laughs> this is some producer just who's just saying, like, "How can we get hip with the new media stuff?" So let's have a let's throw a tw- let's throw tweets on at the end. Um, that's not that <laughs> that is not engaging with new media. That's completely pointless. Um, even very successful shows that do it quite well, like there's a show in Australia called Q&A, which is a sort of a must-see weekly show where politicians and, and thinkers come on and they, they, uh, they debate, they answer questions that are posed by the studio audience and uploaded via webcam from people at home. And um, It's great, but you don't watch it because of the people who are asking the questions or because of the engagement via webcam. Those are just, those are gimmicks, those are conceits that then feed what the actual meat of the conversation is, which is the people on the panellists on stage. And I want to find a way to do a show where, where that's no longer the case, where what is actually interesting about the show is the participation and the interaction, where you have a much, much more, where embedded in the very DNA of the show is that it feels more like the best Facebook comment thread that you've ever read or the best Reddit you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And, the, and that, the, uh, that someone in the studio audience can be talking to someone on a webcam at home about something that I, the host, said in response to something that one of the panellists said. 
right? So I think, and that's, this isn't the only way of doing things, but, but I, I think everyone in the world in, in media knows that somebody is going to nail a crossover between 20th century media and 21st century media. And when they do, it's going to be fantastic and really unusual and, and scintillating. And maybe that won't be me, but if it's not me, I don't know who else is better qualified right now, having worked on HuffPost Live in exactly that space for as long as I did and now having a podcast that does a similar kind of thing uh, to do that. And if it's not me, then I wish them well. Well, we should certainly keep an eye on you, Josh. But before we direct people to where they can keep up with your adventures, at this point in the show, we have the creative challenge. Oh, yes. Where my guest sets a challenge to the listener based on the theme of the interview. So something that they can go and undertake this week, whenever this week is, for for a listener. So, Josh, what's your challenge? My challenge is based on an experience that I had earlier this year, which I found accidentally very fulfilling, which was I woke up before dawn for some reason, which is very unlike me, and was suddenly possessed with a desire to articulate uh, in greater detail some thoughts that I was having about a show that I had sort of been noodling on but procrastinating about for a long time something that could provide the template for a one-man show or a, or a stand-up special. So my challenge to your listeners is to pick something, anything that they've, anything creative that they've been procrastinating about or that they've sort of been thinking they might like to get around to doing but isn't quite fully fleshed out enough to warrant beginning or wasting the time on starting. And one day this week, set the alarm clock for just before dawn and Take your iPhone out or your smartphone or whatever recording device you have and open the voice memos app or, or its equivalent, anything to record your own voice, and go for a walk for one hour and brain fart all of whatever comes to you about that thing and just and allow it to be terrible and allow it to be half-assed, but just give yourself a, a dawn stroll in which you can say whatever is on your mind about the thing that you've not been being creatively uh, proactive about. I like this, Josh. And I think one of the things I like about it is that if you can get out of bed before dawn and out of the house, then doing something creative is going to seem a lot easier compared to doing that. (laughs) That's right. And it also means that you've already got a feather in your cap, regardless of whether or not what you produce is total shit. Right, right. You have the quick win and the the feeling of virtue and and accomplishment. Yeah. Take a coffee. Excellent. Well, thank you, Josh. (laughs) This has been a really fascinating journey through the, the media and conversational landscape of the last three decades. Where can people go to to follow your current and future adventures? Well, the simplest place is Twitter, uh, at Josh Zepps, uh, H-Z-E-P-P-S. Um, and the other simplest place is the podcast, which is called We The People Live. It's spelled with a hashtag at the front of it because it's cool and hip and down with the kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, hashtag <laughs> We The People. We The People is all one word. And then live is a, a separate word, and you should be able to. I mean, there's a link to that on my Josh Sepp's Twitter page, and if you search for it in iTunes or anything like that, you should be able to you should be able to find it. And 
uh, if you're in Australia, then you should it should be fairly obvious where to find me. Excellent. And I, I really recommend Josh's podcast, particularly for those of you who might be confused, angry, distraught about the political situation, either in America or other parts of the world, and really just trying to get your head around, well, well how on earth can this be happening? So one of the great things about Josh's show is, as he says, he does get people on who have very different views to him and maybe to you if you're listening to this and you have sympathy with that. And he does a great job of getting people to open up in an articulate and respectful way about how they see the world differently. And so for me, he really does deliver on that tagline of making debate healthy again. Well, thank you, Mark. That, that, and if people are, if that entices uh, listeners, then uh, uh, there are a couple of episodes that I would point out. One is with Scott Adams, oh, yes, uh, who yes. is the creator of the Dilbert cartoon, who is one of the most articulate Trump supporters who I've uh, ever spoken with. I wanted to do a, um, a show with a Trump supporter, but many of them are not that politically informed um, and the ones who are don't really want to talk about it in public because it's somewhat taboo to be openly supportive of Donald Trump. Scott Adams is different. He's one of the most successful cartoonists and satirists in the world. And yet he's, yeah, I think a really interesting, he provides a really interesting set of, of, I don't want to call them insights because I think they're mostly fallacious, but a set of propositions about Donald Trump, uh, which you'll find interesting. There's another episode with Andy Kindler, who's a great comic who used to be one of Letterman's uh, primary comics, uh, but who is now uh, very, very anti-Islamophobic and thinks that I am a, an, an Islamophobe for speaking bluntly about the threat of Islamist uh, jihadism. And that is an interesting episode. And if you need any greater endorsement of my podcast, I just found out that Ricky Gervais follows me on Twitter. So he and I have been chatting. So if Ricky likes me, then you should too. And actually, that episode on Scott Adams, it's, it's the second half you talk about Trump, but in the first half, he's got a, also got a fascinating account of his own career yeah. and how he got going as a cartoonist. And I really think, you know, for anybody who is, even if you're not interested in the political aspect later in the show, for some insights on what it takes to make it on a big scale in a, in a creative field, I would really recommend listening to that episode. So we'll make sure we link to both of those in the show notes. Good point. Excellent. Thank you, Mark. It's always great to talk to you. Thank you, Josh. You have been listening to The 21st Century Creative, hosted by me, Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show with more information about my guest and links to the sites we mentioned, as well as all the archived episodes at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful for your reviews, and also for sharing the show with your friends and followers. If you'd like to have the 21st Century Creative Foundation course delivered to you for free, giving you 26 lessons of advice and worksheets on carving out an original creative career, you can sign up at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative interested in getting my help as a private coaching client, 
You can learn about how I help my clients at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.